You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. May's U.S. employment report is the big event in the week ahead as stocks enter the often weak month of June. And something about Mercury in retrograde. Stocks are finishing May with a mixed performance as the talk is still about when the Fed is going to start tapering and whether inflation is truly transitory this time around as the developed world looks to rebound uh, from COVID. While the developing world faces devastating third waves of the tepid vaccine rollout hampering efforts to acquire herd immunity. Well, June isn't uh, historically a strong month for stocks globally. Globally, Bespoke Investment Group points out that uh, over the past 50 years, the Dow has gained just 0.1% in June and has been positive 52% of the time. But over the past 20 years, June was far weaker, gaining only 40% of the time. June's performance is uh, tied with September as the worst month of the year, with an average Dow decline of 0.7%. It at least appears that lessons are being learned about how to deal with third waves of the pandemic locally, though. President Cyril Ramaphosa said yesterday that uh, he didn't know how long or how severe the third wave will be as he tightened restrictions in response to the increase in COVID-19 infections we're seeing. In a national address, uh, Ramaphosa said the country's lockdown is going to move uh, one notch to level two, which means uh, that nighttime curfews will start an hour earlier at 11 o'clock and also cuts the number of people allowed to gather. No more than 100 people can attend events indoors while the numbers for outside have halved to 250. Well, as reported by Business Day on Friday, the government refrained from more severe restrictions such as the banning of the sale of alcohol or indeed closing borders. In keeping with its stance ahead of the Easter holiday, it's also placed a greater emphasis on safeguarding economic activity in contrast to the earlier days of the outbreak. Well, Chris Holdsworth, Chief Investment Strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment is with us for our monthly temperature check of the animal spirits. Good to see you again, Chris. Kick us off with the COVID situation, which at least appears to be improving around the world. What are the global numbers telling us? Michael, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the, the global picture, the seven-day average number of new infections is now sitting at around about 500,000 infections per day. It's down 16% week on week. It's, it's the biggest decline that we've seen in some time. And the numbers are now sitting at roughly around about where they were in about August 2020. So a pretty sizable decline. And if you look at individual countries and regions around the world, the vast majority have seen pretty sizable declines over the past couple of weeks as well, especially a place like India, which is down about 20% week on week. They now have less than 200,000 infections per day. So th- there are very few exceptions out there. There are very few countries that are seeing numbers pick up. The global picture, certainly at this point, is improving quite rapidly. Very few exceptions. Sadly, South Africa is amongst those exceptions to the rule at the moment. The numbers steadily increasing in South Africa, but the pace feels less aggressive than the second wave so far. What are you discerning from the numbers, Chris? Yeah, we're up to about 4,000 infections per day. That's up about 25% week on week. Look, I don't know that we're brave enough to try to forecast where where this is going to go. And that's a sentiment that I think was expressed by the president last night as well. I mean, the trajectory of the virus up until now in a number of countries, but including South Africa, has been pretty unpredictable. I think the best we can do is keep a close eye on the numbers and hope that this wave will be far less severe than the first or second one. And that we get that vaccine rolled out as quickly as possible. As new supplies do come into the country, uh, you know, the president was uh, quick to point out the issues around um, uh, Pfizer and and J&J. Uh, sitting outside of the government's control right now and that uh, as soon as we get those vaccines out of the factory in Quebec, that uh, we'll see a much faster rollout of the vaccine locally. Globally, what is the vaccine rollout dashboard revealing? 
we're now looking at about 10% of the global population that's been vaccinated. And last week alone, we had about 0.9% of the global population vaccinated. So what it tells us is that within about 18 months or so, even accounting for some vaccine hesitancy, we should reach global herd immunity short of any hiccups. And it is encouraging that the, the pace of vaccine rollout has picked up over the past couple of weeks, particularly due to increased rollout in, in Asia and where the numbers are still very low. And there's a long way to go. So we'll keep a close eye on it over the next couple of weeks. At this point, the US, Europe and the UK are all vaccinating about 2% of their population per week. Asia and the rest of the world is significantly below that, but picking up. And uh, importantly, into that uh, Olympic Games in Tokyo, one hopes that it does go, go ahead for many of our, our rowers, uh, our hockey team uh, and uh, our sprinters as well, who are really uh, lighting up the, the track over in the States at the moment. Now, you like keeping an eye on M2 money supply in the US. Why? What does it tell us broadly? Now, I think this is going to be the key data point for markets over the coming 12 to 18 months. A couple of months ago, year-on-year -year growth for M2 money supply in the U.S. peaked at 27% up year-on-year. -year. There's been a slowdown, but a slowdown to 18% up year-on-year, -year, which is still massive by historic standards. And what happened is this time around last year, there was a huge increase in U.S. money supply. In April last year, the number went up by over 6% in that month alone. This April, it's up about 1% or so. So there's been a vast increase in money supply. There are a lot more dollars out there. And that's absolutely fine when there's a large demand for dollars, where people are willing to sit with dollars in their bank accounts because they're uncertain. But at some point, given the vaccine rollout and the, the, the reduced number of people being affected, people will become less risk averse. They'll be more willing to spend and the dollars will seep out of bank accounts into the economy. And at that point, we've got less demand for money, but now we've got this massive supply. And the issue is that it may well lead to sustainably high inflation. And with that will come a central bank response. So it's a red flag. It's been flagging for some time. Uh, and these numbers are still pretty large. In, in Europe and in Japan, you're looking at about 9% year-on-year increase in money supply. So the U.S. Is, is much larger. And it tells us that they are a hang of a lot of dollars. And presumably at some point, dollars are going to buy less, whether it's of other currencies or of stuff in the U.S. Yeah, and that obviously feeds into inflation. It's certainly one of the, the, the drivers as well. If we see the levels of M&A activity, which are red hot at the moment, all of this liquidity that's uh, sloshing around the system. But I want to come back to inflation because that really remains the most talked about topic in, in markets still, Chris. And it feels like it's been that way since the start of the year. What inflation measures do you like keeping tabs on in the US? And just take us through why you, you look at these measures versus some others, because it can be a bit of a noisy data set. Yeah, you're completely correct. There are a number of different inflation measures in the US. You've got headline CPI, there's core CPI, there's median inflation in the US. But the measure that the Fed prefers to look at is core PCE inflation. It's a more stable series. It's weighted differently from normal core inflation um, in various different ways. Health has a higher weight. <clears throat> it's weighted different ways in a number of ways. Health has a higher weight as an example. And that series has picked up quite aggressively of late. Uh, core PCE inflation is now sitting at 3.1% year on year. That's the highest rate that we've seen since the mid-90s. It's the first time since December 2018 that core PC inflation has breached 2%, which is the Fed's target. So we know that the Fed has got a couple of things that they look at. They look at inflation, they look at growth, they look at employment. Inflation increasingly is ticking the box for them. And they want inflation to average 2% or well, from 2018 through to now, given the latest print, it's averaging just shy of 2%. They say they don't mind if inflation breaches 2%, well, it just has breached 2%. And if in month-on-month -month inflation over the next year 
is in line with the last decade, which is very low, core PCE inflation is going to breach 2% for the next 11 months in a row. So we're going to land up in a situation where inflation has breached 2%, breached 2% for some time, and it really has just set the clock ticking on when the Fed is going to start to talk about tapering and potentially even hiking rates. And that's my, my follow-up question, because what is this uh, core PCE inflation number telling us then? It doesn't sound like it's transitory. No, that, that's the issue. So there, there, there certainly are two camps in the market. The, the one saying that post-June we are going to see a big reduction in inflation by various measures, including core PCE, and it will swiftly drop below 2%, and the Fed will be quite relaxed. But there's another saying, if you look at the increase in money supply that we've seen, and you look at the commentary coming from companies, if you look at PMI indicators, where they're suggesting that price increases, month-on-month price increases, are running at the fastest rate since 2009, they're suggesting that inflation is going to persist. Now, at this point, the Fed is suggesting that it's transitory. But given the data that we're seeing, we suspect shortly that debate is going to shift. And if you look at uh, the global long bond market, uh, the Fed's message of, of this round of inflation being transitory does seem to be landing, though, Chris. So we're not really seeing too much stress in that market. Yeah, the, the long bond the bonds in general in the U.S. are completely relaxed at this point about inflation. What's currently priced in is for the Fed funds rate to get to about 0.5%, so 225 increases over the next year. That's it. And then only two 25 bip increases the year after that. The market is pricing in the U.S. Fed funds rate to only get to 2% in six years' time. So on the one hand, we've got this, this lot of evidence to suggest that prices are picking up. And on the other, a market which is suggesting that may well be the case, but the Fed will see through it. Mm. And therefore, interest rates are going to grow very gradually. And that's where the risk lies. At some point, we get a few more high inflation prints. The market changes their view. It starts to expect the Fed to hike sooner rather than later. We get a big shift in yields, and that will be quite volatile for markets in general. Yeah, and, and there is a, a way to play rising inflation, rising interest rates. But if you, you look for evidence of, of where we're seeing inflation in the market, I mean, the U.S. housing market, how wild is the U.S. housing market right now? It's so wild that half of the houses listed nationwide in April went pending in less than a week. It's so well that one poll found that most buyers admitted to bidding on homes they'd never seen in person. So you just go online. Uh, and a Bethesda, Maryland resident recently included in her written offer a pledge to name her firstborn child after the seller. Uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous how overheated the housing market is. It sounds like it's going into bubble territory. You know, my favorite data point in the US housing market is that houses sold at this point on average, it's on average, are above listing price. Actually, more than 50% of homes are going above the initial asking price, which also suggests that real estate agents have been caught out by this as well. They're, they're putting in numbers that, that are too low. Mm. But yeah, housing prices in the U.S. are up about 13% year on year. They're well above consensus, and they've been above consensus now for about nine months in a row. The U.S. housing market is red hot, and, and that is part of the problem. An elastic band is being stretched here. If you look at house prices relative to rent, so it, it's similar to a P.E. ratio that you look at for a share or a, a bond yield. If you look at a bond, it's a measure of valuation. House prices relative to rent are at the highest that we've seen ever. And we've got data going back to the early 70s. And that tells us that this has to correct in one of two ways. Either it is the case that house prices are simply overheated and they need to come back a bit or rents need to go up. And if it is the latter, if it is the case that rents need to go up, then that will become a problem again for the Fed because rent has a very large weight in both core PCE inflation and, in fact, CPI inflation as well. And at this point, we've got core PCE inflation running at 3.1% while there's been very little rental increase. 
If rents start to come through, then it pushes those inflation numbers even higher. So it's, it's a key series to look out for. If it is the case that the housing market starts to roll over, then the Fed's going to be relaxed for a longer mm. time. If it is the case that rents start to pick up, then they're going to accelerate the discussion around tapering and potentially even hiking. We're getting a dipstick, a gauge of the animal spirits as we head into June. And an asset manager friend of mine sent me a quick message to say that uh, one of his uh, biggest clients is putting a lot of their money into cash in June because Mercury is in retrograde. I'm not kidding. And he says things can go haywire. So be careful out there, folks. I don't know if I would take that as an investment uh, philosophy or, or investment advice, but that's what people are doing right now. Chris, uh, another important measure of the strength and the health of the global uh, economic rebound is trade. And that certainly appears to be in rude health. Now, these numbers are simply rocketing. If you look at the number of containers that are handled at ports around the world, they're up about 17% year on year. But we know that the base last year was affected because of COVID. So instead, we should look at pre-COVID levels, in which case current trade, simply the number of containers handled, is up about 13% relative to pre-COVID levels. They're at a record high. And what's particularly encouraging is if you look at the latest data points, the reason that total trade has picked up isn't because of what's happening in China, it's what's happening in Europe. So the initial recovery was led by imports and exports out of China. That's now led to an increase in imports and exports out of Europe as well. So global trade is in rude health, and that's if you look at the number of containers handled. If you look at total trade, which will include other goods that are also shipped around in, in dry bulk, like corn and iron ore, the total volume of goods that are traded is also at a record high. It's up about 6% or so relative to pre-COVID levels. So we've got a number of economies which are either back in line with pre-COVID levels or some are slightly behind, some are slightly above, but global trade is without a doubt massively above mm. where it was before. And again, could feed into inflation as we see constraints and bottlenecks to try and keep up with this demand that is surging. How even is this recovery, though, that you're tracking? Yeah, first of all, on, on bottlenecks, you, you're completely correct. If you look at the, the cost of shipping dry goods across the Pacific, which is the Baltic Dry Index, that's trading at close to a decade high. If you look at the cost of shipping container goods into and out of China, that's up about 200% relative to pre-COVID levels. So you've seen this, this massive increase in trade, and exactly as you said, it's not necessarily even. And in places like China in particular have seen a massive increase in shipping costs. And these numbers have simply ramped up because there's a shortage of containers. Now the question is, how long will that last? Mm. Well, the feedback from shipping companies is that it's likely to last until, sorry, likely to last until August or so at least. And the concern is that some of that will be taken in the margin by companies, but some of that will be passed on to consumers as well. So it's just another reason to believe that increases in prices are unlikely to just be in the short term. We're likely to see more of this passed in over the next six months or so. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether or not we're expecting this to continue into the second half, but as you say, it is the baked-in expectation at this point. Now, the main event of the week will be U.S. payrolls on Friday. Median forecasts at 650,000, but who knows? Uh, following April, shockingly weak, 266,000, that figure was close to 750,000 lower than forecast. We were expecting a, uh, a million. So the largest miss in the history of the series. We just don't know what's going on in the labor market or what are we seeing in the data yeah there's lots of mixed signals in, in the labor market on, on the one hand you've got the data that you're referring to the, the unemployment numbers the non-farm payroll numbers which suggests that the total labor force is still about five percent below where it was pre-covid and on the other hand there's lots of evidence to suggest that companies are finding it increasingly difficult to fill their positions 
and they're having to increase wages. Uh, various, fed, various surveys are conducted around the US. They're quite interesting, regional surveys on manufacturing. And if you look at the Richmond Fed data, which came out last week, it shows that companies are finding it more difficult to fill positions with the appropriate skilled person now than at any point in the history of the data. And as a result, they're pushing through wage increases. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence. Some of it is quite interesting with regards to companies in the U.S. having to add extra benefits. There's one about a fast food joint in the U.S. that's now offering pet insurance as an employment perk. And there's another one that's offering an iPhone if you'll come through and you'll end up getting the job. So on that hand, you're saying that that suggests that there's tightness in the labor market, but we've still got a large number of people unemployed. And I think the way to square the circle is that there, there has been a, a very generous set of stimulus checks that have gone out, yeah. which in some ways act as a perverse incentive not to work. Those checks are now coming to an end. So we will probably land up with more people willing mm. to look for jobs. And as a result, we'll probably land up with some of these issues being resolved. But in the interim, um, there certainly is a shortage of labor. That's what companies are reporting at, at this point. And that will give the Fed pause for thought as well. Uh, absolutely. Amazon upping its minimum wage from $15 an hour to $17 an hour. Stories of $1,000 sign-on bills. Uh, but if you're getting free money from the Fed to sit at home and trade meme stocks on Robin Hood, why should you go out and look for a job, Chris? Now, with U.S. earnings season basically done and dusted, what can we learn from, from this round? Uh, I think when we spoke last month, you said we were on course for one of the best quarters ever. Yeah, it, it was. Um, Q1 was one of the best quarters on record. We had close to 90% of companies surprising on the upside and earnings were up over 50% year on year, which is the highest number we've seen yet. And, and Q2 looks like it's going to be even better. At the moment, using current consensus forecast, earnings are expected to be up about 60% year on year. These are extraordinary numbers. But if you delve into the data, there are a couple of interesting bits that come out. First of all, typically it's the case that when talking about US companies, there's a focus on the US economy. But that is increasingly misplaced. U.S. companies in aggregate, not just listed ones, but in all the U.S. companies in the U.S., generate about 20% or so of their earnings abroad. That's in aggregate. There are some companies, of course, that generate much more. And so it's increasing the case that one needs to incorporate a global view when one is evaluating companies just in the U.S. These numbers have grown materially. In about 1980 or so, about 10% of offshore of earnings came from offshore. Now that number has doubled. And that will just continue to be the case. So the first point is that it's an extraordinary season, but it's extraordinary not just because of the recovery in the U.S., but partly because of the recovery in the rest mm -hmm. of the world as well. Yeah, and it also shows you as an investor how important it is to have exposure to the, the U.S. market in particular because it, it's about getting global exposure. Uh, and here in South Africa, we're still less than 1% of the entire investment universe. If you're saying over 20% of corporate profits uh, from companies listed on the S&P 500 are derived outside of the U.S., it just shows you how increasingly interconnected and globalized this world is becoming. Now, we've got uh, first quarter GDP for South Africa expected on the 8th of June. And uh, we've also been beneficiaries of this global rebound in terms of commodities. But we've also got uh, new industries. We've got hydrogen and cannabis and electric vehicles all vying for a slice of uh, the government's vision for the future. Along with old school cyclicals like oil and gas, it's going to be very interesting just to see how much momentum there is to build on at, a, at an underlying level. What are you expecting given the high frequency data? It has been rather positive over the last few months. Yeah, it's been very good. And for some time, we've been saying that the market's been underestimating the recovery and growth in South Africa. And, and we'll hopefully see evidence of this on June 8th, when the GDP print for Q1 will come out. Now, the, the Reserve Bank at this point is expecting growth, quarter-on-quarter, quarter, annualized growth, 
to be of the order of 2.7%. So instead of annualizing, if we just looked at quarter on quarter, it'd be about 0.7% or so. And we think that's probably a bit light. Even though it is ahead of consensus, we think the number is likely to be around about 1% quarter on quarter. So about 4% annualized. And which would be well above, as I said, the consensus and the SARP forecast. But that, that's the real GDP number. If we look at the nominal GDP number, which, which doesn't take off inflation in effect, we think that that number is going to surprise us on the upside by even more. And the reason that that number is so important is when you calculate debt to GDP, it's nominal debt to nominal GDP. So what matters isn't necessarily the real number. What matters is the nominal number for that calculation. And as a result, we think that the debt-to-GDP number is going to be far better than that presented by the state in the February budget, and much better as well than was what was presented in the medium-term budget policy statement last year. So if we're correct, and these numbers do surprise on the upside on June 8, uh, the bond market in SA would be a, a beneficiary of that. And it is so important. I want to stay on that point for a while longer. Maybe repeat it because it is—it's the denominator in our debt-to-GDP forecast, and they're so crucial to ratings and the way foreign investors view the country. But as you say, forecasting debt-to-GDP is a lot tougher than it looks. Chris, just take me through why it is so much tougher. Yeah, we, we've done a lot of work on this to go and see how accurate it is. How accurate? Mark, uh, sorry, we've done a lot of work on this to go and have a look at how accurate market participants are at forecasting debt-to-GDP over any time horizon. Uh, and, and what you'll find is if we were to go back back to mid-90s or so through to now, is that forecasts have been woefully bad over any time horizon longer than a few months. I mean, a, as an example, if we were to look at one year ahead forecasts for debt to GDP, 50% of the time they're going to be more than 5% out. Now, th now that number is, is pretty big. I mean 5% off for debt to GDP is massive. And just literally one year out market participants get it wrong that often. If you were to look out at sort of five years out, there's a band of about 25%. And 50% of the time, you're going to be more than 25% out relative to where it actually landed up. The point out of this is that forecasting debt to GDP is very difficult. And what typically happens is that short-term moves are extrapolated out to the future. And as a result, if you start to improve a bit, the longer-term numbers move by a lot. And we think this is likely to be the case in, in this instance. That's the first point. The second point is we wouldn't attach much weight at all to long-term forecasts to debt, worth debt to GDP, given the history of, of those forecasts and how wildly inaccurate longer-term forecasts of debt to GDP have been for both developed and emerging markets over the past 25 years. Now, forecasting is a mugs game. I don't even know why we uh, attempt to do it uh, in financial media, but uh, it's what gets us by from day to day. We'd have nothing else to talk about. If we look at where the area is happening, is it too optimistic? Is it too pessimistic generally? Do, do you have that kind of uh, level of data? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, over time, market participants, particularly the, the IMF and the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is what this study was conducted on, their forecasts have been too optimistic and, and sizably so over time. And that's true for both emerging markets and developed markets. Debt to GDP has been well above their forecasts. And if, as you extend the time horizon, the bias becomes even larger. So in effect, they're biased for one, they're typically too optimistic, but for two, even if one discounts that, there is still a massive range around that. 
mm. um, where the real numbers come through significantly different from the forecast numbers. So again, official data GDP forecasts that are relied on by the rating agencies, just understand that they do need to be taken with a pinch of salt. Yeah, a rather large dollop of salt, much like taking data out of the Chinese uh, Communist Party, seriously. Just one last question, Chris. Uh, commodities really have been the big story in South Africa and why are we expecting our GDP to be much better than initially penciled in, despite all the, the difficulties in forecasting uh, debt to GDP and, and all the rest of it. How much longer can we expect commodities to remain on a tearaway? Because we did see uh, the Chinese Communist Party last Sunday, uh, two Sundays ago, I think, actually getting involved, starting to rattle some sabers uh, around the levels of price uh, increases that we're seeing around some key commodities. Do you think we're starting to see a top in the commodity space? Yeah, based on the work that we've done, there's two time periods that one should focus on. There's what you think is going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months, and there's a longer term theme. Over the next 12 to 18 months, we think that there are some reasons for concern about commodity prices. Um, a, there's a point that you mentioned about the, the Chinese authorities expressing concern about how elevated commodity prices currently are. And B, if you look at Chinese total social financing, credit extension in China, that has slowed materially. And typically, there's about a nine-month lag between a slowdown in total social financing and a slowdown in demand for commodities out of China. So putting it together, uh, there's good reason to believe that commodity prices don't have much further to go um, based on those two factors. However, if one takes a longer term view, uh, currently there is a big push for the electrification of the drivetrain. In addition, wind turbines are are going to be put up everywhere. And all of these things, the electrification of the, the, the Sorry. All these things, electrification of, of the car, and wind turbines, the whole story, that increases demand for a number of commodities, copper in particular. And, and at this point in time, there simply isn't enough of the stuff out there, and companies aren't investing enough to get it out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So while there may be short-term concerns over the next 6 to 12 months or so, I would suggest that the longer-term picture for certain commodities, green yeah. commodities, yeah. is pretty good um, at the moment. Well, speaking of uh, green commodities, uh, just uh, we, what we need to get sorted out in South Africa is uh, the regulatory environment to help pull these commodities out the ground. The OKIP copper project is now being beset by mafia-style uh, extortion, uh, and SAP's just not doing its job there uh, to uh, help develop uh, one of the first new copper projects in South Africa in many years. So if we want to take advantage of these environments, uh, these favourable uh, conditions for commodities, then it really is uh, up to government to start holding up uh, its end of the bargain. Chris Holdsworth, Chief Investment Strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment, with the animal spirits uh, diverging a little into June.